no idea which Democratic candidates can actually break through here. It frankly could still be Inslee. You could imagine if there was like huge hurricanes and huge wildfires and stuff happened. You could imagine like huge swings might occur. Um, but, you know, whoever wins, I think you're going to find that the level of energy will be much higher this time around than it was in 2016. Inslee did release a new profile picture and it got created quite the buzz. He's got a whole, (laughs) (laughs) there's a headline like, there's enough renewable energy power with lust for Inslee to power the globe or something like that. His Clark Kent glasses. Yeah, yeah. mm -hmm. I know, after what I saw on Twitter, I'm I'm done with contacts. I'm going to wear glasses every day and see if I can get some of that love. (laughs) Trendsetter. Democratic presidential candidates do some legitimate climate debating. A top Republican pollster gives a lesson on climate communications, and Ohio passes a major subsidy package for coal and nuclear power plants. We discuss all of the above in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from the other side of Los Angeles is Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. How's it going today, Shane? It's going. I'm excited. Congress is in recess, so a little bit more downtime for those of us who do uh, what we do for a living, and I'm happy to jump back on the mic after a week or so here. Well, someone who's not on the mic today is our Democrat, Brandon Hurlbut. He is out on vacation. So on with us today, we have Jigger Shaw, someone who almost needs no introduction. He is the entrepreneur behind the rise of Sun Edison, and he's the current president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's also the host of the Energy Gang podcast, which we all know and love. Jigger, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so this is like a special treat for me. That's awesome. Well, we know that you are an industry expert, but we're going to ask you to put your sort of politics and policy hat on today and, you know, fill in for Brandon. And I have to say, though, that I don't know if you are public about your party affiliation. So we're putting you in the Democratic spot, uh, but I don't know if that's quite fair. All I know is that you are on the board for Climate Hawks Vote, which is, you know, I think it's a nonpartisan political action committee that supports climate candidates. And there are connections to the Democratic Party that way. But I also know, because you told me, that Facebook categorizes you as a Republican on its back-end system. So what is that about? <laughs> well, I think I have so much scar tissue that I recognize that certain things the federal government doesn't do well, which I think is a widely held Republican view. And so uh, it categorizes me that way. But I do think that I can make Brandon proud and uh, carry the you know Democrat mantle for him. Sounds like we can cut this debate short. I didn't know Jigger was on the right side of things. It's been it's been fun, guys. It's been fun. And see. You win. You win, Shane. <laughs> Never before, but I'm going to take it. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you do actually have to talk to each other a little bit more. We're going to delve into the second round of Democratic debates. We're going to look at uh, Republican pollster Frank Luntz's testimony. And we're going to take a look at a big controversial energy bill that was just signed into law in Ohio. So with that, let's get into it. Last week saw another 20 Democratic presidential hopefuls take the stage for the second round of debates in the 2020 primary. It took CNN until the second hour of debate on both nights to address climate change. But when the issue came up, there was actually some meaningful dialogue and not simply stock answers about the importance of addressing the climate crisis, starting with the return to the Paris Climate Agreement. 
In one poignant moment, Governor Jay Inslee called out former vice president and current Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden for not being ambitious enough with his climate plan. And he specifically called him out for not phasing out fossil fuels. At that point, Biden stumbled and said, we'll work it out. So, Jigger, I actually want to go to you first on this. What did you make of this specific exchange between Biden and Jay Inslee? And was this to you a moment of real climate debate coming out for the first time? You know, the challenge I have with this kind of dialogue on the national stage is that I think the moment was lost on everybody. So like, I think the vast majority of viewers were like, what was happening there? What's the inside politics? How does that actually work? Like when Kamala Harris went after Joe Biden before, it was a clear thing. She was on one side. Joe Biden was on the other side. I don't know that the facts were actually exactly accurate, but, but it was made for good theater. I think most people were like, but Joe Biden's saying the right things on stage. Why are you going after him? And I don't know that it, that it was really fully comprehended by any anybody who's not on energy Twitter. Really? That's interesting. Because I did see, and again, it's hard to know what is echo chamber speak and what is resonating more broadly, but people were calling out Biden for saying something like, you know, my plan doubles offshore wind in the U.S., when doubling offshore wind means, I think, going from five turbines to 10 turbines. And I did see that kind of, you know, being shared around online. But again, I guess you're saying that that just doesn't leave the echo chamber? Yeah, you know, it's similar to when Hillary Clinton said we were going to build 500 million solar panels. I was like, what is 500 million solar panels? Like, does that even mean anything to anybody? And so I, I, I do agree that I think that climate took on a little bit more resonance. I think Cory Booker's comment around the fact that, you know, the Paris Agreement was basically table stakes and just saying you're back in the Paris Agreement is not going to, you know, win you a lot of points on the Democratic primary was, you know, I think landed really well. But in general, I thought that that particular interaction on fossil fuels didn't get to the same point as, let's say, Martin O'Malley's comment during the Democratic debates in 2016 when he said, we're going to get off fossil fuels by 2050. I think everyone's like, what? Like, that's never been announced before. Like, that was genuinely new. I think here it was kind of muddled. Shane, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I actually agree quite a bit, Julia. I posted on Slack, I know you saw it um, right after, that I wasn't really sure that anything came out of it. I thought that, you know, they were going to have a robust discussion. And, and I agree with Jigger that unless you knew what you were looking for and you were prepared to piece it together, I didn't learn a whole lot. I mean, I think Joe Biden saying that his plan would get rid of coal and natural gas was kind of weird because it doesn't say that. But I don't think he was going to be the climate candidate anyways. I think Elizabeth Warren uh, talked about something that I've talked quite a bit about, was having some sort of tariff-based punishment uh, for emitting countries for goods uh, imported into into our country. And I think that would be a really good way for someone like Donald Trump, frankly, who, who uses tariffs and wants to engage in some trade confrontations to make a positive impact on the environment and on climate uh, while also you know maintaining our domestic manufacturing industry. So I thought that was really cool. But again, you have two nights of debates. You sort of have to piece this stuff together. I really thought that for a bunch of candidates, 20 on the stage total, who have talked about climate almost ad nauseum, I didn't see it. I mean, they mostly agreed on everything. There were a couple nuggets you could take away. But if I'm someone who doesn't care about this issue, I, I'm in the echo chamber. But if I don't care about this issue and I, I, I want to become excited, I want to start caring about the issue, I want to vote based on you know who's going to protect us from, from the worst effects of climate change, I don't feel like I got anything out of this that I didn't have going in. Hmm. 
for reference, Biden did clarify after the debate that he would not phase out fossil fuels, but would phase out fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, so, right, as you say, people weren't expecting him to necessarily be the climate candidate. I just thought it was one of those moments where I think people were wondering, what does Biden stand for in general? I think overall in the primary, people have been kind of wondering, you know, what is he about? Is he just about going back to Obama era policies or does he have his own strong platform? And um, which will just be interesting to watch how the primary plays out. One thing I wanted to put to you guys was uh, another passing moment, but I thought it was interesting. Ohio Representative Tim Ryan, who's running for president, proposed introducing a chief manufacturing officer position if he were elected president. And that whole role would be to try and make America make things again, including, he said, batteries, electric vehicles, solar panels. Jigger, is that a role you think would actually be effective? Yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. I think, again, it's it the coherence of the context is why, you know, Tim Ryan's not one of the top five candidates, right? I think, like, what what I would have said had I done that is said, look, you know, it's been the policy of the United States of America to outsource all of our pollution to China for 45 years, right? We even normalized trade relations with them. And, you know, what Trump voters are saying is we want to bring those jobs back, right? That's why we need a chief you know, manufacturing officer. And that person's job would probably be industrial policy, which has been a four-letter word in this country for 45 years, right? I mean, Canada and Germany do industrial policy all the time where they systematically say, these manufacturing processes are probably going to be competitive here. These manufacturing processes are probably not going to be competitive here. We should provide subsidies to the ones that will be competitive and not the others, right? But that whole dialogue is something that like the American public hasn't gone through in 40 plus years. Shane, do you want to add anything on this? Yeah, I mean, just that, that, you know, similar to my comment a moment ago about Elizabeth Warren, I'm just on the inverse side of this. I'm not sure that we have to do as much central planning here insofar as I would rather punish other countries, not punish, that's not the right way. I, I would rather have other countries account for their negative externalities. So I would rather see tariffs on goods that are produced in a more carbon intensive way in China or India coming into the United States. I think that the best way to handle this is let our market work, but also make sure that our market isn't prohibited from working because they're being undercut by goods that are being manufactured with such low environmental and climate standards that they can that they can you know produce these uh, these products at a much lower price point. So I would certainly love to see us compete with China in the battery space and in the clean tech space. I understand that we're losing that race. I think there are incentives we can put in place that we've talked about before. Uh, I think there are other policies we can put in place like a carbon tax or like renewable portfolio standards where we can encourage. U.S. companies to invest, I get a little bit nervous about any kind of central planning, not because I think, you know, it's a bad idea in spirit. I just think those things don't tend to go well. I think the market tends to out-innovate government and move faster than government. And oftentimes the government solutions are not the ones that I think end up being the most effective. So I don't know that I disagree with you on that, Shane. Uh, I think where I think I would push back a little bit is that most of the incentives in the United States comes from the state level, economic development agencies. I don't think we actually do a lot of subsidies at the federal level. And so part of this is actually just giving the state level agencies the data to say, look, you guys should stop you know, subsidizing textiles where we're never going to win and start subsidizing these other sectors where we have fundamental advantages and actually educating state level economic development authorities so they don't keep giving you know, $100 million low interest bond packages to the wrong industries. 
You know, I think that's great. I think any any federal uh, information sharing would be good. I mean, the federal government's obviously in the best position to collect and distribute data. I think we can talk a little bit more about this, too, uh, in our later segment about Ohio. But to the extent that, that the federal government can, can give states the information they need to use uh, the money or the tax breaks or whatever they're doing wisely, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, I think that uh, the idea from Tim Ryan wasn't to have a big, big government plan. In fact, he's kind of a more moderate markets guy. What is big government is, you know, the Green New Deal. And several candidates in the debates did come out supporting that. Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Bernie Sanders. Sanders saying, I don't know why Democrats shy away from big ideas like this. Then you had a couple of very specific mentions. I thought one that was interesting was John Delaney championing direct air capture. Like, when has direct air capture ever come up in a debate? And that, for reference, is, you know, machines that literally take carbon out of the atmosphere, which some people say is necessary to meet our climate goals. So now the last piece of the debate I want to talk about is the climate justice element. The debates took place in Detroit, obviously nearby to Flint, where they have had the water crisis there. Uh, Several candidates did put out plans right before the debate that talked about climate justice, specifically Jay Inslee and Kamala Harris. It didn't really come up much on the actual debate stage. Uh, Of all people, Marianne Williams was one of the few people who talked about environmental justice. Jay Inslee did mention it. But I'm wondering what you guys thought of of this element. Obviously, climate justice is very important. The climate crisis exacerbates inequality and disproportionately impacts people of color. And for a long time, U.S. environmental policy has inadequately addressed this. So, Jigger, did you have any thoughts on the climate justice element? And were you pleased to see it come up at the debates or did you think it did not get enough play? Well, so I I thought that the the work that was put into putting real legislation together by AOC and Kamala Harris before the debates and then the climate justice plan that came out with from Jay Inslee. And just one note on that, like, can we all just agree that Jay Inslee is writing the Green New Deal at this point? Like, it just <laughs> feels like this is like plan number five from him. I think that he's actually... The, the flushed it out now for everybody. By his own admission, he he is the gold standard, as he would say. But he he did get signed off yeah. from the AOC. We've been we've been trying to get uh, find a time to get Governor Inslee on the show, and that's what I was saying. Jigger is I need to know when we're going to have him on because I got a lot of reading to do. I mean, he is putting out a plan oh every couple God. weeks, and it's not like top line stuff that you can just sort of easily uh, recite. Well, you're gonna love it because he literally goes like agency by agency exactly what he would do differently and so he has a lot of detail in there but I I, like on the debate stage I think it was lost again like in general I would say that the part of the Democratic Party infrastructure that I find quite annoying in this area is that um, that they're not really landing the points right so on the one hand right the Democratic Party lost um, three major Midwestern states, and that's really what caused President Trump to win. And everyone is unified by saying that they want President Trump to lose this next election. But when you say, like, who are the people in these three states, this comment, climate justice, is probably not how they're going to get their extra 30,000 votes. And so I thought it was a little bit weird that that's what they were going to focus on. When you look at Inslee's plan, which I think is a little bit better, where like Kamala Harris and AOC's plan seemed like it was more like, these people have been wronged, we need to figure out how to right the wrong, which smacks of sort of reparations and other things, which I think is sort of like difficult to see how that works. Whereas Inslee's sort of saying, these guys have really terrible housing stock, let's 
you know, basically figure out a way to fix it all. These guys have, um, you know, higher pollution in their particular area. We should transform the White House Council on Environmental Quality to that. Those seem like more like sort of incremental things that the bureaucracy could probably handle doing in a more intelligent way than what I thought Kamala Harris and AOC put forward. Interesting. Yeah, for reference, some of the pieces of the Kamala Harris AOC plan would require congressional climate and environmental bills to have an equity score, kind of like a CBO score. It would also require an additional review for climate equity in federal rules and regulations. They would require all major federal climate and environmental investments to consider frontline groups. And it would create an office of the an office of climate and environmental justice accountability and mainstream those officers throughout the federal government. Jay Inslee's plan, as you mentioned, includes some more specifics, like guaranteeing 40% of all federal green investments go to frontline communities, broadening access to capital for entrepreneurs and communities of color, banning the use of toxic chemicals found most often in poor neighborhoods, and bringing down power bills for working families. When it comes to votes, there's something to be said for getting people to vote who haven't voted in past elections. And so I wonder if that's what they're trying to say is, hey, we hear you. We are thinking about your plight and come join us in, you know, next year at the at the polls. I think when it, when you look at equity in climate and environmental space, I put it in two buckets. One, I think, is a political winner. Uh, one, I think, is a political loser. And I'm not saying that one's good and one's bad. I, I'm just talking politically speaking. One of the things that Republicans have talked about for years, I mean, way back when I was on the other side of this debate, when I really didn't want to see any sort of climate action, any regulation, any carbon tax, we had requested from CBO a report. So CBO score, the Congressional Budget Office creates scores for bills, and that's what Julia referenced a moment ago. But they also create reports for Congress to consider about you know the cost of certain types of policy proposals. We had requested one on how a carbon tax or some sort of price on carbon would impact the American public generally. And CBO concluded uh, that it would be bad, uh, but it would be most bad. It would be it, the, the largest negative impacts would fall on low income communities. And that's because energy is relatively inelastic. Um, there are efficiency measures one can take to reduce their consumption, but especially for low income families, typically they're using the amount of energy they need to survive. And so when you increase the cost of the, of the commodity and you can't reduce your consumption, these low-income communities are going to be the ones most heavily impacted. I think trying to find a way to address that is a political winner because even wealthy people don't want their energy costs to go up, but low-income people can't afford it. So I think something like carbon tax and dividend, which you know a number of groups are supporting now, I think that can be a political winner. You're telling people, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to solve a problem and I'm going to put money in your pocket to make sure you don't pay for it. The other side of it, the sort of environmental justice side, where low-income communities are breathing you know, worse air, their kids are more likely to get asthma, that's no less serious. It's obviously critically important, but it's a really complicated subject matter. I think it's not necessarily a political winner, as Jigger pointed out a minute ago. And then also, how do you solve it? Because a lot of the times what happens is um, these facilities are built in lower-income communities. Property values are lower. But let's say that you stopped that. Let's say that you started building you know, non-desirable energy projects in really wealthy communities. Those wealthy families would move if they were in a non-desirable area, and those property values would plummet. So I think it's a really complicated issue, and I don't know exactly how you address it. I know you can't address it in 30 seconds on a debate stage. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I think the other piece of this which didn't come out on the debate stage, which I would have wanted to see is, you know, what you guys have talked about in political climate in the past has been, you know, EPA doing its job in the core Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act bills, which, you know, like, which this is part of, 
right? I mean, a lot of the investigative powers of the EPA and the sanctioning powers of the EPAs have been chronically underfunded. And a lot of the local pollution that is that you can pinpoint the responsibility for to XYZ manufacturer is something that you could do now under existing law and isn't being done um, sufficiently today so that, you know, so that you can clean a lot of these neighborhoods up. I guess, Jigger, my last question to you on this is, uh, you know, because we have you here, do you feel hopeful or not for Democrats in the 2020 presidential? Yeah, I mean, look, I I find the democratic process to actually be pretty damn exciting and it works pretty well, right? I think that one of the things you learned in the 2016 process is a lot of the heavy footing by, you know, super Democrats and, and all the other stuff actually led to, you know, less energy in the Democratic caucus, right, in terms of the general election. And I think in this stage, what you see with, that Donald Trump like actually benefited from in his you know, melee four years ago is this is going to create a huge amount of excitement. And I have no idea which Democratic candidates can actually break through here. It frankly could still be Inslee. You could imagine if there was like huge hurricanes and huge wildfires and stuff happened. You could imagine like huge swings might occur. Um, but, you know, whoever wins, I think you're going to find that the level of energy will be much higher this time around than it was in 2016. Inslee did release a new profile picture and it got created quite the buzz. He's got a whole, (laughs) (laughs) there's a headline like, there's enough renewable energy power with lust for Inslee to power the globe or something like that. There's Clark Kent glasses. Yeah, yeah. mm -hmm. I know, after what I saw on Twitter, I'm I'm done with contacts. I'm going to wear glasses every day and see if I can get some of that love. (laughs) Trendsetter. Yes, well... Jay team, if you're listening, we really will have a respectful debate and discussion with the candidate, we promise. (laughs) Not trying to objectify here. Um, With that, let's go to the other side of the aisle. Top GOP pollster and strategist Frank Luntz has done an about-face on climate. During President George W. Bush's first term, Luntz issued a famous memo that warned Republican Party leaders they were losing the environmental communications battle and it was making Bush vulnerable. He then advised them to emphasize the lack of scientific certainty around climate change and drop global warming for the less scary-sounding climate change. Now he's reversing his position. At a recent hearing before the Senate Special Committee on the Climate Crisis, Luntz said he was wrong back in 2001. He said, just stop using something I wrote 18 years ago because it's not accurate today. Shane, I want to go to you on this. You've spoken about Luntz's work before. He's had some polls out recently showing that Republicans care about climate change and that Republican leaders should probably start engaging on this issue. What did you make of his testimony just the other day? First and foremost, I owe our audience a mea culpa. Um, I have cited the Luntz Global Report where he talked about Republicans and especially young Republicans uh, being really invested in climate. I did not realize that Luntz was no longer part of Luntz Global. So he leads his testimony pointing out that everyone who's citing that report didn't do their homework. Uh, I wrote an entire op-ed about that report. So clearly I did not do my homework. Interestingly, uh, he came back in this testimony and said all those same things. So he said, first, America believes climate change is real, that it's man-made and that both political and business leaders need to do more. Second, climate change matters more to Democrats and less to Republicans. But... Younger Republicans do care about it a lot and want something done in a bipartisan effort now. Third, an increasing number of Americans are willing to pay or pay more, but only if their action has 
meaningful, measurable impacts on climate change. And fourth, they expect the rest of the world to walk the walk. So we've talked a little bit about number four. We want to find a way to make sure that this global challenge is being met in a global way. But what's interesting to me is he spends the first couple you know, paragraphs of his testimony pointing out that he didn't actually conduct the survey that we've all cited before. And then, you know, shares his findings, which are all the same things that that survey found. So I guess I want to know what data he's looking at. I want to know what polling he's done, if it's not the Luntz Global polling, to get there. Because I think folks like me and others on the Republican side could look at that, uh, cite to it. I think it would be helpful. I guess the last thing I, I want to say before I hear what Jigger has to say is, I really wish he would do more press. Um, Luntz has been conducting... Uh, polls on Fox News Live, focus groups on Fox News Live for years. The Fox News audience knows who he is. They trust him. They know he's a legitimate conservative, that he understands what he's doing. And so testifying in front of this Senate committee, which is a, it's an informal committee, it's a good first step because I think we need to get this dialogue going. But I think the tail is wagging the dog here. I think if conservative media we're out talking about the threat of climate and how important it is to combat it and what Republicans can do to help. I think Republican members of Congress, Republican senators and Republican voters would get behind it. They trust Fox News. They want to they you know, they want to sort of be in line with, quote unquote, conservative thinking. So I think it's great that that Frank Lentz is speaking out, but I'd love to see him get on Fox, go on CNN, get out there and talk about how important this is, because I think the first step to getting conservatives to get behind this is not convincing members of Congress. It's talking about it constantly in the press. I think that will get Republican members of Congress where you need them to be. Shaker? Yeah. So I the thing that I was trying to figure out was to what end this was going to happen. Right. It's, you know, the thing that that was interesting was I don't think any of the Republicans showed up for the particular hearing. So I think it was only the Democrats that showed up for the hearing with Frank Luntz. And then. Well, sorry, Jigger, not to interrupt, but just a, a point of fact here. It is an all Democrat committee. There are no Republicans. on. Oh, OK. So then so then he was he was educating Democrats in the, the committee. And then then separately, I think this is like one of those sort of. Oh, like Obama tricks where Obama's like, I took an idea from the American Enterprise Institute and then I made it into legislation and now the Republicans won't vote for it. I'm just trying to figure out to what end does this go? Like, because I like the thing that I struggle with is I think that Republicans will vote for money in transportation bills or in defense appropriations or in the farm bill or other things. But I'm trying to figure out in what world is the Republican Party ever going to proactively say that polluters have to pay their fair way and, you know, and potentially go out of business because they have to pay sort of a carbon tax? Like, is there is there any form of that that you think would Grover Norquist would accept? I think so. I mean, the answer to the Grover Norquist question is no, but I do think that there is a form of that that's successful. I mean, I've worked in a couple of different congressional offices, several, and members really do ask in your staff meetings, what do we get the most calls about? What do we get the most letters about? And a lot of this, you won't be surprised, comes straight off of Fox News. The things that they're talking about, their anchors are talking about, get people riled up and they call their member of Congress. So I think there's a scenario where if, you know, as Luntz says, you can't talk about only the doom and gloom, but talk about the opportunities, not just the cost of inaction, but the opportunities from action. If, if media outlets like Fox and like some of you know, the Wall Street Journal and some of the more conservative publications were constantly telling conservative voters all the great things about addressing climate, 
in all the ways they could do it in a productive way, I think those voters would contact their members of Congress. And I think you'd find that people will, will switch very quickly. I mean, Trump is an extreme example, but I think we've seen several times where a story is on Fox News and now it's on the floor of the U.S. Congress because they see it and they respond to it. So I don't think you're going to make a policy argument in Washington that's going to win over those members of Congress. But I do think you can make a media argument that can get conservatives to reach out to their members and senators and shift the dialogue quite a bit. Well, to put a to put a finer point on it, though, so so Luntz talks about in his testimony having a no regrets strategy and that you need to frame climate action as a sort of boost, you know, cleaner air, cleaner water, uh, less spending, um, enhanced national security. But I think to Jigger's point, at what point does that just in the real world of policymaking come in conflict with real policies that would actually need to see fossil fuel use decline? And are we just talking about communications here? And that's great because it'll get this subject in front of more people's eyes and ears. Or are we just going to end up in the same place because fossil fuels is the sticking point here and Republicans will just never get on board with a policy that, you know, reduces fossil fuel use? I know what you're saying, Shane, about the communications element, but are you saying that you see fossil fuels being part of the equation or just do the Frank Luntz thing, focus on the, the upsides and just kind of see what, where the chips fall? I mean, I think I'm saying a little bit of both. I I don't think we're going to totally eliminate fossil fuels within the next 11 years or whatever. But I also think that you're probably giving um, lawmakers a little too much credit. I think communications is is far more important than people think. And I'll give you a quick example. Um, Fox News ran a story several times over uh, the course of a week, a couple of weeks ago, where they talked about how Berkeley had gone mad Um, and they lumped together in they made all their, their municipal code. Uh, gender neutral. So instead of a manhole, you know, the traditional manhole that that you would go down to get into the sewers, they call it a person hole. Well, what they also did was they also um, created really strong uh, electrification building standards. And if we electrify our buildings and our homes, I think we're going to find that we're going to decarbonize our economy quite a bit. That's something we're all really, really proud of. But they lumped the two together on Fox. So they say, these liberals are out of their mind. They want to make you call things these gender neutral names, even though they have fact based names and they're electrifying buildings. And everyone's like, man, this stuff sucks. And they, they apply sort of negative connotations to that. Whereas what I'd like to see is people like Luntz on Fox News saying, look, think what you want about the the, the sort of um, um, gender neutral naming of of, of whatever manholes, but that is separate and apart from decarbonization, which is really providing economic opportunity. And for example, if we did that in rural Alabama, X, Y, and Z, I mean, I don't know what those outcomes are, but I actually think that when we just allow positive environmental change to be lumped in with quote unquote crazy liberalism, we're never going to get there. But if we have strong conservative messengers out there talking about the benefits for, you know, rural communities, urban communities, conservative communities, I honestly do think we could see more movement than, than I think what you think, Julia. Yeah, I think the the challenge I have, though, Shane, is I I just think that we've got to figure out what it is that we think the art of the possible really is, right? I mean, and if you have a more optimistic art of the possible than I have, then, you know, that would be probably a first for the podcast here. But I think, you know, like that I think Chuck Grassley is going to get a tax credit bill done. I think he's going to extend the biofuels tax credits. I think we'll probably have a EV tax credit and we're probably going to have a you know, um, uh, you know, uh, energy storage tax credit and all those things, because that's something that people love to do at the federal government level is just create a Christmas tree of tax credits. Right. But do I think that we're actually going to pass a real carbon p- legislation 
carbon tax, whatever it is that you want to call it at the federal government level? Probably not. My sense is it's going to be a Green New Deal is going to pass in New York like it has and in California like it will and be enhanced further. And then in 24 other states that have passed the the carbon sort of action plan. But I don't see it actually happening proactively at the federal government level. So I disagree. And I actually had this conversation with uh, one of my business partners just earlier this week on the phone. I believe it's going to be an arduous path, but I'd be willing to bet 10 years from right this second, the, the federal government will have some sort of price on carbon, whether that's a cap on trade, a carbon tax of some sort. And I believe we will have a nationwide decarbonization policy. Now, I'm not saying we'll have 100% RPS or anything like that, um, but I truly believe 10 years from now, both of those things will be true whether it comes in the form of model building codes, whether it comes in the form of um, DOE using their sort of energy efficiency uh, capabilities to electrify uh, more of the country. I do think there will be a price of some sort separate and apart from from um, decarbonization. And I, I, I know that I'm a broken record on this. And Jigger, I actually haven't heard from you on this. Um, I don't think the way to get there is to talk about the Green New Deal because I just think it scares people. I, I think every time we have a conversation about something that, that's viewed as extreme by any part of the political spectrum, we take a year away from productive dialogue and it gets us farther and further. But I think when you look past that, I really do believe, again, in 10 years, we'll have some sort of price on carbon and some sort of decarbonization policy at the federal level that complements whatever's going on at the state level. Yeah, no, I, th- that frankly gives me great hope and optimism to, to believe that you believe that because I certainly want that. But I don't I've just never thought that that was possible. I On the Green New Deal side, I so I take a slightly different point of view, I think, Shane, because I mean, I'm from that small town in Illinois that it had the seventh largest steel mill in the country and it shut down while I was there. And all of the people who still live there who refused to move are working in jobs making 15 bucks an hour and their kids are all in college, right? And they lost an entire career in their mind. And when I talk to my friends on Facebook, um, who are all deep red Trump supporters, um, they, you know, they see a Green New Deal and they're like, maybe there is a future for my kids around not having to move into the gig economy, right? Almost all of those people are underemployed and they have been for 20 plus years. Right. And because those jobs never came back to those hollowed out uh, industrial towns. Right. And so so I think people see what they want to in the Green New Deal. But what I see in it is proactive government sort of thought processes around how to give people careers again, where, you know, someone who doesn't have a Ph.D. and whatever can actually make 30 bucks an hour for um, doing, you know, really important work. I think, and we, we talked about this on a, on a past episode, but I think maybe you separate the sort of what you're talking about, which is the energy and manufacturing industrial side of the Green New Deal, and perhaps give it a new messenger, quite frankly. Um, but I think universal health care is always going to be a tough issue in the U.S. I don't think we're going to have it regardless of who's president in, in two years. I think um, a universal um, uh, wage or jobs for everyone who wants them, I just don't think we're ever going to have that kind of policy. And so maybe... If you look at the industrial side of the Green New Deal and look at some of the you know advanced manufacturing components and job training programs, I don't necessarily disagree with you that that could be a positive dialogue for part of the hollowed out industrial Midwest. But the Green New Deal as it stands is an entire sort of you know reconfiguration of the U.S. economy. And I just don't think we have a messenger for it being AOC right now that can connect with those sort of rural and, and blue collar voters that you're talking about. You might be right, Shane. I, I, I totally see where you're coming from. As somebody who has created 
you know, thousands of jobs um, in my career, I have to say that having to provide health care for my people like sucks. It's just literally like the consultant comes in and says, here are the three plans to choose from. And I have no idea. I can't negotiate for better pricing. Like it just feels like the, the whole healthcare system is broken. And frankly, I think employers would love to fix it more than employees. But um, but I, I agree that tying the two together makes it more problematic. Well, speaking of problematic, there is a bill that recently passed in Ohio that's getting a lot of flack. So let's talk about that. Last month, the Ohio State Legislature passed and Governor Mike DeWine signed a major energy bill that has sparked outrage and confusion. Vox's David Roberts called it the worst energy bill of the 21st century. So what exactly will HB6 do? Most notably, it gives a roughly $1.1 billion subsidy to the utility First Energy through 2026. The bill introduces another surcharge to shore up two coal plants owned by the Ohio Valley Electric Corporation. At the same time, HB6 guts Ohio's renewable energy and energy efficiency standards, effectively throwing them out in the coming years. According to the bill's supporters, this would ultimately save Ohio ratepayers $1.3 billion on their electricity bills, but the story isn't quite so clear. First Energy has argued for years that the nuclear plants are unprofitable and need government support to stay open. This would also preserve some 1,400 jobs, the utility says. Last year, the subsidiary that runs First Energy Corporation's nuclear and coal-fired power plants filed for bankruptcy. This is interesting because according to The Intercept, the bankruptcy filings show that First Energy spent more than $30 million from 2018 through 2019 so far on lobbying and campaigns in Ohio and Pennsylvania, where the company has also sought a bailout so far unsuccessfully. So that's $30 million for lobbying and communications for roughly a billion dollars in subsidies. So Jigger, there's a long and sorted story here of how this bill ultimately came to pass in Ohio. I'd love to get your assessment of what's going on here. Um, is this just how the sausage is made or is there something seriously wrong with this bill? Well, tying it back to our last topic, I have to say that pieces of legislation like this is what makes me so uh, pessimistic, Shane, about getting something done at the federal level. But I, I just, you know, this, the, un, the, the way in which this came about has been happening a lot, right? It just happens to be the first energy for almost no money. It was less than a million dollars of actual campaign contributions. They were able to get um, the House Speaker... Uh, his job, right? So there was it was a competitive race, and the other uh, person who was uh, running for the speakership was far more moderate on these issues and far more pro clean energy. And and Larry uh, Householder, you know, basically won by being able being able to offer a million bucks worth of campaign contributions to his caucus. And you know, and and he promised to push this bill through for First Energy, and that's sort of how it happened. Funny enough, or not so funny. I mean, this is exactly what Exelon tried to do two years ago in Illinois to save their nuclear plants. They first wanted a clean bill through the legislature just to give them subsidies. And then they said, well, maybe we'll partner with um, the coal plants down south to see whether we can get the votes to get this through. They couldn't. And with like five hours left in the session, they finally partnered with the renewable energy industry to get FIJA passed two years ago in Illinois that actually got that unlocked. And so, but for a few folks who didn't vote for the previous version of the bill, Illinois could have done this same thing two years earlier. 
Um, it, it, it's really just such a sad state of affair of corporate pork. And it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just completely disheartening from a state that I thought held so much potential uh, 12 years earlier when they first passed the RPS. Yeah, I think it's interesting looking at the dollar amounts. I mentioned 30 million. That's according to the intercept bankruptcy filings, but that includes paying lobbying firms and communications firms and things like that. Your point about actually funding campaigns is interesting because I was shocked to see just how little some of the dollar amounts were. Something like 5,000 to the House Speaker in Ohio's campaign, but of course, other money went to other affiliated members of his party and things like that. But like, 5,000, maybe I'm just being naive here, but is that enough to buy someone's, you know, vote and buy their support? I'm kind of, I guess, surprised that that's enough to kind of get the job done. Not that I want there to be more, to be clear. I'm just like sometimes shocked at how this all plays out. So I used to work in the Ohio delegation. My first job on Capitol Hill was working the Energy and Commerce Committee for Congressman Bob Latta. So I think the, um, the five thousand dollar number is not what I what I'd zero in on. I don't think it's a quid pro quo. In fact, I you know I would be highly disappointed if there were ever a quid pro quo in politics. I think First Energy for years has built very strong relationships across the state, not just in Eastern Ohio where they're located, but all across the state. There's a, a nuclear facility uh, that was right outside Congressman Lattice District that I went to visit uh, when I was a staffer for him. So I, I think I would focus a little bit less on the money and a little bit more on the political sway that first energy holds in the state. Um, the bill specifically, obviously, you know, is not ideal. What's, what's interesting to me is I'm fully supportive of states uh, it, directing their own energy policy and trying to prop up, you know, facilities that they think will be helpful. I think California does that in a, in a really constructive way. So I'm not, I'm not disappointed uh, that the state passed a law to crank up or, or to preserve, I'm sorry, it's, it's nuclear energy. What I, what I'm really surprised about is why roll back the RPS? I mean, you had, I think it was 12.5% by 2026. Now they cut it back to 8.5% by 2027. And I would have just gone a little bit farther with the policy. I think you could have done two things. I think you could have said, we need this nuclear energy in the state, both because of the jobs that it creates, uh, but also because we need a lower carbon economy. So I would have done something different where I would have cranked up the RPS, or let's call it a clean energy standard rather than a renewable portfolio standard, crank it up to 50% by 2030 and include nuclear or something like that. You know, you can find a way to prop up those zero carbon nuclear facilities without rolling back standards for other technologies. I, I didn't get that latter half of the bill. I, I totally understand supporting uh, industry within your state. I don't know why you would pair that with reducing your low carbon program across the rest of the footprints. I don't get the bill. I'm not a fan of the bill, but I, I really think they had an opportunity that they missed. And I think that's a shame. Well, why I think they did it was because it enabled these lawmakers who supported the first energy uh you know, subsidies to say that they were ultimately saving consumers money. They say, hey, we we did add some new surcharges, but hey, we cut these other renewable and efficiency ones. So you're saving money. And to be honest, I haven't crunched all the numbers, but that just seems a little, I don't know, too good to be true or, or I don't know what exactly. But the they didn't have the highest standards anyway for efficiency and renewables in the state. So I'm sort of surprised that that math checks out if, if indeed it even does. Well, they had done something similar in Indiana uh, the previous year, so I think it is a trend there in the Midwest. One thing that came out of this bill, which was interesting, is they did grandfather uh, a gigawatt worth of solar in the bill. So a gigawatt worth of solar is now going to be built in Ohio because of the bill. So they basically forced the Public Service Commission and others to approve the 
the projects through the bill. So that's a silver lining. The interesting dynamics of the bill, though, is that we focused on clean energy, which is fine because that's sort of what we do on this podcast. But um, the fight here was not about clean energy. The fight here was an anti-natural gas fight. So what they were really voting for was they're voting against all the Marcellus gas because what was destroying the coal plants and the nuclear plants was the the really low-cost uh, Marcellus gas. Remember, Marcellus gas in Pennsylvania is trapped. They don't have enough pipeline capacity to get it out. So the gas actually trades at like $1 a million BTU, $2 a million BTU, much below market prices because they can't get it to the hubs to get you know competitive pricing. And so that's the benefit to natural gas burners in the state. And they were saying, you need to shut down these coal plants to make room for more of our gas uh, electricity, and those gas voices lost decisively in this battle. Interesting. Yeah, I thought it was curious to see First Energy and nuclear plants, which, you know, there is a climate case to be made there for keeping those plants open. I guess teaming up with or indirectly through this bill aligning with the coal industry when, as you mentioned, in other states, there's a history of low carbon resources coming together. And I just thought that was weird. Why would why would the nuclear industry want to do that? Or they're just looking for a deal to get done however they can. I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts on the bedfellows here? Well, First Energy has always been um, a coal and, and nuclear um, utility. They owned a natural, a state-of-the-art natural gas plant at one point and sold it, uh, I think, about a decade ago. Um, so I'm not surprised at all. They're, they're dual interests. In fact, you might remember the coal nuke bailout that was being you know rumored forever that um, President Trump talked about. They looked at the Defense Production Act that Secretary Perry talked about. They sent to FERC and FERC said no. That was a first energy project. I mean, you're talking about now, not just Ohio, but the United States government. That was almost all first energy pushing that. So they've been pairing those two, uh, those two together for quite a while. Yeah, you know, the, and the one thing I would push back on is the word nuclear industry. That, that there's no meaning to the word nuclear industry. NEI is sort of a factless organization that sort of sits there and, and you know, talks about education, but there's no industry per se. Exelon does what it wants to do in Illinois and, and First Energy does what it wants to do in Ohio. It's not like NEI is going to come forward with its own policy agenda. And then the, the actual constructors of nuclear plants, as we all know, have gone bankrupt with Westinghouse and others no longer really being around. And so I wouldn't say there's a nuclear industry as much as there's nuclear enthusiasts on Twitter. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, that is a heated debate. I went on vacation and came back and saw some people were like reeling from an online Twitter debate. And I was like, I'm just I'm just not going to read that. (laughs) Well, and and Jigger, I want to throw this out to you because you've been in this space for so long and been successful in the clean energy space. I am a true believer that until you know battery storage technology improves in a way that I think will take a long, long time, plus then we have commodity issues we have to deal with and all that, I think the only way to getting even close to a carbon neutral economy or to a zero carbon economy is with a very robust nuclear sector. Do you disagree? No, I, look, I think that on paper, nuclear power makes all of the sense in the world, right? The question is, exactly how is it that we're going to make it happen, right? You've got loan guarantees from the federal government. You've got, you know, uh, rate-basing work in progress through the state legislature of Georgia. And, like, when you look at what Votal is going to cost, 
you know, the CEO of Southern Company and the legislature and the political futures of many of the people who threw themselves on the train tracks to get that project done. Like how many other states do you think are going to go through that level of masochism to support nuclear? I, I just I think nuclear is an extraordinary technology, an extraordinary concept. But until we get small modular reactors or something else that's innovative to try something different in the space, I don't see a role for the private sector in nuclear, right? And so unless we want to create a huge government program with the U.S. military just directing nuclear, I just don't see how it becomes a solution, even if it's one of the lowest cost solutions in a spreadsheet. Yeah, I guess my my quick quick response would be that I think any of this is going to cost a fortune, right? When you look at transitioning to a low carbon economy in, in, a, in a rapid scale, that's why, you know, the Green New Deal, though the price tag I know is, is, is probably inaccurate, has been, you know, viewed as so expensive. If we're going to have to spend money in some way, shape or form through tax credits or subsidies, nuclear seems like something we know we can rely on, which is why I'm a fan. Oh, I totally agree with you. I'm just saying that if you, Goldman Sachs has a, a you know, fund for solar and wind. They have a fund for batteries. They have a fund for all these other technologies. They don't have a fund for nuclear. Like my point is that there is nobody who wants to fund nuclear. In fact, when a utility company announces a nuclear power plant, their stock price goes down by 25%, right? And so I just don't see how you're going to effectuate the the love for nuclear into a new nuclear plant. I just think everybody around the table is saying, well, I'm not in, I'm not in, I'm not in. And so then the only group that's going to have to be in is the U.S. Congress saying we are going to create an industrial policy, which is basically what we did in the 70s. I mean, we didn't build nuclear plants to the private sector in the 70s. It was a federal government program that was trying to figure out how to transfer our nuclear weapons technology into peaceful nuclear power plants. Well, overall, there's been a fair amount of agreement in this episode, but let's underscore that with our final segment now, if you can't say something nice. So now it's time to wrap up our show with our Say Something Nice segment of the episode. That's where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something polite or redeeming about the opposing political party. Let's give you the first word, Shane. All right. So my Say Something Nice is going to be about... um, John Delaney, Governor Hickenlooper, and Governor Bullock. Um, Similar to the discussion I just had with Jigger, I appreciate it because we don't necessarily have to agree on everything, but he's run a business in this sector, uh, not a consulting business, but a business. Um, And so, you know, I'm I'm interested to hear what he has to say because he has hands-on experience. Listening to John Delaney, who I realize is not going to be the Democratic nominee, just made me feel a little bit better about what I was seeing on stage the other day. I think there's plenty of room for political differences um, on the right and the left. But what I want is to see you know, our leaders, or our future leaders, or our potential leaders have an honest and constructive debate about what our country's going through and how we can possibly improve it for, for everyone, frankly. And, um, and, and I wasn't seeing that on the debate stage. I think everyone's sprinting to the left. I think it's a little frantic. And it was just really heartening for me to see a few Democrats get up there and say, we're Democrat, we're liberal. Some call themselves progressives, but we also have to be reasonable. We have to apply some of the, the, the real world experience we have running businesses or running states to, to the you know, federal level. And, and that was just something that made me feel really good. So compliments to those gentlemen. Yeah, John Delaney's, uh lives near me in Maryland, and uh, his co-founder at uh, his 
his company uh, is actually the chairman of my board. So uh, I have uh, some ties. I mean, we're not close, but I have some ties there to John. And I thought he, like he was really level-headed in the way in which he brought um, his experience to the debate stage. But he's definitely not firing up the base. Jigger, what do you have to say uh, for the Say Something Nice uh, segment here? So I was, um, you know, following the, San- the Senate transportation plan. And, you know, while it's not necessarily, you know, brown- groundbreaking news that the Senate all wants to, you know, fund transportation projects in their own uh, states. The fact <laughs> They're actually the doing Senate their jobs, and- first of all, doing a, an actual bill. That's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The, the fact that the Senate Environmental Public Works Committee sort of has a section that says, you know, climate change, and that section dedicates more than 100 pages and $10 billion out of $287 billion, so a small number, but still a big number nonetheless, uh, to climate change seems like a big breakthrough. And all 11 members of that committee voted to, to push the bill out of committee. So it, it feels like the progress that Shane was talking about. And it warms my heart to see our ability to not have to sugarcoat the section, but just to be able to call it climate change seems like a big deal. Well, it warms our heart that you came on the podcast this week, Jigger. We really appreciate it. This was so much fun. Great. Yeah, we'll have to get you guys in person so you can duke it out uh, the way we normally do here in Los Angeles. Uh, it's, it's a good time. Yeah, thank you, Jigger. That was great. We appreciate you joining us and uh, hopefully we'll uh, meet in person sometime soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. Great. Well, that is our show for this week. This is Political Climate. We are a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. And you can find Political Climate on pretty much any podcasting platform. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, almost everywhere. We're also on Twitter at poly underscore climate. So tweet us there. Let us know your feedback. And also, please leave us a review. If you go on Apple Podcasts, you can give us a star rating and you can actually write some feedback there. We would love it if you did that. Thanks so much for listening and until next time.